Welcome to the Revelation Church podcast. We trust today's message will speak to you. If you'd like to get in touch, just drop us an email at hello at revelationchurch.org.uk. Jesus said, I am the vine. Now, I have to say, I'm pretty rubbish at gardening. We've got Richard and Christine with us today. They had to sort out our garden for us because I just hadn't got a clue. I'm not that interested, if I'm really honest, and I definitely haven't got green fingers. I think I inherited this from my mother, who could kill a plant with a look. (laughs) Apart from one memorable occasion, that is, when she was given a beautiful house plant by a friend. And I said, oh, God, oh, thank you very much. Thinking, oh, golly, how long will it take me to to kill this one? Anyway, she diligently watered it, you know, over a couple of weeks. And do you know what? It stayed really healthy looking and, you know, just as it was when she was first given it. And she, oh, this is really great. It was beginning, however, to start smelling rather pungent. So she had a closer look, at which point she realised it was actually an artificial plant. (laughs) And her watering had just made it go mouldy. And so into the bin that went. Anyway, but, so as you can imagine, preparing for this instalment of the I Am sayings of Jesus has been quite a revelation to me. I am the vine, or I am the true vine. The things I've learned about plants... I now feel I can call myself an expert horticulturist, in principle at least. Now, when we look at what Jesus says, the context in which he says it is always significant. He never just sort of like said something out of the blue, apropos of nothing. I, I do that all the time. You, you ask my family, I, I did it yesterday. After, after, over coffee, you can ask Malcolm what I said. It was a load of rubbish. But not Jesus. Jesus, whenever he spoke, and it was always significant and, and in the context where they were at the time. So when um, he said, I am the bread of life, which is what we looked at a few weeks ago, he said that um, after the feeding of the 5,000, and he used his provision of physical food as a springboard to teach deeper into his divinity and his power to satisfy our spiritual hunger forever. And here, this statement comes during probably the most momentous week the disciples had lived through um, during as they'd followed him over the past three years. So they'd arrived in Jerusalem on the Sunday um, to be greeted by so many crowds throwing palm branches down and shouting, Hosanna, save us now. You know, it must have been such a high. <gasps> wow. And then as the week went by, first of all, Jesus goes into the temple and he he, he turns over the tables of the money changers and he he, he denounces them. And, you know, obviously it didn't go down too well with people. Um, Then at a meal in Bethany, um, he was anointed with really expensive perfume by a respectable woman called Mary, who then scandalously unbound her hair um, like a woman of dubious morals in those days um, in order to wipe his feet. And instead of being shocked and rebuking her, Jesus praised her and made a, a cryptic comment about she was preparing him for burial. 
I don't know about you, but as I read the Bible's account of this week, I sort of get a sense of underlying tension which grows every day as the crowds begin to turn against Jesus. The authorities up their plotting against him and approach Judas with an offer he doesn't refuse. And then we come to the Passover feast in an upper room on the Thursday evening when they're going to celebrate the Passover feast together. The day before, Jesus will be crucified, though, of course, they didn't know that at the time. Can you imagine how the disciples are feeling by now? I wonder how I'd feel if I was there. I know, sort of heightened feelings and concerns, that sort of hollow pit uh, feeling in the pit of my stomach, a sort of growing sense of dread, maybe, about what's going to happen next. And then throughout the meal, things continue to be a bit unsettling, really. Um, Jesus accuses one of the 12 of betrayal, and then Judas slips away. Jesus kneels down and he washes their feet. He talks about his body being broken and his blood being spilt. The disciples quarrel amongst themselves about which one of them's the greatest, and Peter is warned that he'll deny Jesus three times. It doesn't sound much of a celebration feast. And then after Judas has gone and the meal is over, Jesus continues speaking and teaching his disciples. And at one point, this is what he says. John 15, verses 1 to 11. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Sorry. Um, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burnt. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I am the vine. I wonder why Jesus used that metaphor, the metaphor of the vine. Because, you know, 
throughout his teaching, sometimes he talked about a fig tree or cornfields or something. I wonder why this point, the vine. Well, I think, I think it could be because the vine was a familiar symbol to um, the disciples. In the Old Testament, God frequently referred to his people Israel as a vine. Psalm 80 says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. And every time they went to the temple, they would see the decoration of a large golden vine draped across the four columns at the entrance, a symbol of Israel's status as God's vine. It was all very wonderful and glorious in that. But again and again, people, God's people failed to live up to God's standards. So in Jeremiah 2, God says, I planted you as a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you become a degenerate, de turned degenerate and become a wild vine? And only a few days before this meal, Jesus had publicly used a parable about a vineyard to warn of his death at their hands and his intention to hand over God's kingdom to those who will actually produce good fruit. The Gentiles, the non-Jews, us. And here, Jesus is declaring himself to be the true vine, fulfilling God's purpose where Israel had failed. And Jesus starts by talking about his relationship with God, his father, the vine dresser and the vine. Some versions say, um, my father is the gardener. So how does this work? Well, in the Old Testament, God the father was presented as the one who cultivates the vine, Israel. Here, Jesus emphasizes the oneness of the father as the gardener and himself as the true vine. Again and again, he says, I and the Father are one. Trust in God, trust also in me. Now we, we have a relationship with both Father and Son, the fine dresser and the vine. You can't separate the two. It's yet another affirmation of the essential truth that Jesus is God, as we've emphasized throughout this series. It matters, and it's for our good, and it helps us to understand the relationship between Jesus and us, the vine and the branches. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Jesus intentionally loved his disciples exactly as God the Father loved him. And he loves us in exactly the same way. Um, got a quote from the great um, 19th century preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And it's a bit old-fashioned in that, so I'll put it up here, but it's great. And he said, Beloved, you do not, dare not, could not, doubt the love of the Father to his Son. It's one of those unquestionable truths about which you have never dreamt of holding an argument. Our Lord would have us place his love to us in the same category with the Father's love to himself. We are to be as confident of the one as the other. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Never doubt 
Jesus' love for you. And yet, I think that despite our experience of Christ and knowledge of God's word, we still so often doubt that Jesus loves us. I know he loves everybody else, but not me. Why is this? Why do we do this? I think sometimes it's because of what we know about ourselves, you know. We, we're not, we know we're not great. We know we get things wrong. You know, how can Jesus love us? Sometimes it's because of what's happening in our lives, you know. How can Jesus love me if he's letting this happen? That sort of thing. But think, think about it. In a way, what's so special about me that I should be the only one in history that Jesus doesn't love? It just, it doesn't actually make sense. When our eldest son, Ben, was a toddler, just a re really little, we were having um, one of those lovely, cuddly times together. And at one point, he looked up at me into my face and he started to speak. And I thought he was going to say, I love you. And what he actually said was, you love me. <laughs> He was totally confident in my love for him. And he was right. I did love him. I do love him. I always will, no matter how big he gets. It's the same with Jesus. But do we have the confidence to look into Jesus' face and say, you love me? It's at the heart of being the branches in the vine. You are the branches. Throughout this meal, Jesus had been teaching and challenging the disciples on the way they should live and follow him. He said, serve one another, love one another, trust in God, do greater works than me, obey my commands. If I was one of the disciples, I think I'd be feeling a bit overwhelmed by now at how I was going to be able to successfully do all this and remember, you know, remember them all. But now, his teaching on the vine, I think, shows them exactly how they're going to be able to follow his teaching. Verse 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Abide in me. Some versions say remain in me. It's a similar, but I sort of feel that abide feels even sort of more integral. Abide in me. My words to abide in you, abide in my love. We, so we often talk about following Christ. We've done it this morning. Even. Think about what has come up in the worship, you know, drawing near to Christ, drawing close to him. We talk about walking with Christ, coming into his presence. They're all right and they're all lovely images of the closeness of relationship that we can have with God. But this brings that closeness to a whole new depth of intimacy. There's a world of difference between being close to Christ and actually being in Christ. Um, and this, I, this same concept come, runs through the whole of the New Testament. So in Romans 8, it says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Not just even close to Christ, but in Christ. And the Amplified version is great because it sort of explains what it means. It says there's no condemnation for those are, who are in Christ Jesus, who believe in him as their personal Lord and Saviour. That's what being in Christ means. 
believing in Jesus as our personal Lord and Saviour. And 2 Corinthians 5 says, um, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And again, the Amplified Version says, if anyone is in Christ, that is grafted in, joins to him by faith in him as Saviour. He's a new creature. Grafted in, like the branches are grafted into the vine. It's amazing. As Christians, we are grafted into Jesus, the true vine, and you can't get closer than that. But then how does it work when it says that Christ is also in us? Which Jesus also says here. He says, my words abide in you. And remember, Jesus is the living word. Um, and again, it, we also read that throughout the New Testament. Christ is in you, Romans 8.10. Christ who lives in me, Galatians 2.20. Christ in you, Colossians 1.27. Now, if for some reason I decide to stand in a dustbin, um, and I did actually think about getting a bin and standing in it, but I was a bit worried I'd get stuck, and then I'd have to do the rest of the preach in the bin, so I didn't do that. <laughs> but anyway, if I had done that, and I stood in a dustbin, I could say, I'm in the bin. I can't say, and the bin is in me because that would be ridiculous. It would be some sort of, you know, existential statement to, that I'm saying to try and make myself sound intelligent and everything, but it's actually a load of rubbish. Excuse the pun. You're a bit slow, aren't you? <laughs> but with Jesus and us, the vine and the branches, it actually makes complete sense. Being in Christ and Christ in us means we're totally integrated. If you think the complete connection of the branch causes it to be an integral part of the plant, eat in the plant. The branch isn't separate, it's part of it, it's in it. But then the infusion of the life-giving sap of the plant, which um, runs through the branch, um, means that it is the plant is in the branch, that part of the plant is in the branch. My words abide in you. Christ, the living word, and his teachings give life to us as his branches, and the Holy Spirit produces in us good fruit. So then we don't need to worry about how we're going to serve one another, love one another, trust in God, do greater works than Jesus, obey his commands. We simply abide in him and his love, and experience the infilling of the Holy Spirit, which enables us to bear fruit. As John Piper says, being in Christ Jesus is a stupendous reality. It's breathtaking to be united to Christ, bound to Christ. So far, so encouraging, but, it's always a but. Jesus also talks about branches being cut off or pruned. Ouch. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. As to being cut off, some commentators think that actually this isn't referring to true believers. 
But whether or not they're right, and I'd say the jury's out on that, the challenge to us is simply to make sure we stay abiding in Christ or remaining in him. Just don't be tempted to pull away. Now, being pruned, that might sound a bit drastic and painful, even if it does lead to us producing more fruit. We once lived um, somewhere which had a paved yard at the back with one solitary tree in it. Beautiful tree. The only evidence of nature in the midst of the concrete. My dear husband decided it needed pruning, which he did with great gusto. I was convinced he'd killed it. It just looked like a stick. I wasn't happy. But... Come the next spring, this tree started to flourish and it ended up more lush than it had been in the first place. So that shut me up, for a little while at least. (laughs) Trust me, our father is much more skilled with his pruning tools. And actually, the Greek word for pruning means cleans. Earlier that evening, Jesus had washed the disciples' feet. Then he links the two actions in verse 2. He says, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And the message version actually says, already you are pruned back by the message. So one way God prunes us is to make us clean. Basically, pruning just means making us fit for purpose. And it makes sense. Even I, with my lack of gardening insight, have noticed plants where their branches have sort of grown long, but sort of spindly and out of control, and they just sort of wave around aimlessly with no fruit on them. And we don't want to end up like that. Better a good prune, a good clean, so that we can produce more fruit and start sort of being all like this everywhere. It's not a punishment. It's God's blessing. God uses fine, delicate tools to prune, not a machete. He uses his word to highlight dead or unhelpful things in our lives, which are distracting us from our relationship with him. And he takes them away or he enables us to do so. He cleans us from the dust of the world so that we're better able to reflect his character to others. It's back to being assured of his love for us. You wouldn't accuse a parent of not loving their child because they've given them a good wash, instilled in them good behavior patterns, steered them away from harmful situations. Mind you, the child isn't always grateful at the time. One of my children once called me worse than the wickedest white witch for stopping him doing something silly. (laughs) There's two to choose from, take your pick. (laughs) Pruning and cleansing makes us feel so much better. Ready to bear good fruit. The fruit of good works, highlighted in Colossians 1, and the fruit of good character, the fruit of the spirit. Both are important. Don't prize more highly the fruit which is easier to quantify. 
it's wonderful to produce the fruit of evangelism um, or providing um, mercy to the poor or the vulnerable. It's wonderful to um, step out in gifts of the Spirit and bring prophetic words and pray for healing and see success. It's just as vital to produce the fruit of kindness, patience, self-control. Over the years, I've known a few Christians who produced amazing fruit of good works. But, you know, the character, it didn't quite match up. God is looking for both types. We need both. And then, as we produce this good fruit, what happens? God is glorified, Jesus is joyful, and we too will be overflowing with joy. What a wonderful result of abiding in Christ. In nature, there are some plants called parasitic plants. They, they grow on other trees. They attach themselves to other trees and they live off their nutrients. But they stay exactly the same plant. Mistletoe is one example of this. And however long it stays on the tree, it never changes from being mistletoe. And it seems to me that the only thing achieved by mistletoe is encouraging kissing under it at Christmas. And goodness knows what shenanigans that might lead to. <laughs> Before I became a Christian, I tried to be good and live like one. A bit like attaching myself to a tree, but having no intention of becoming part of it. It didn't work. I was absolutely awful. Remember, Jesus says, apart from him, we can do nothing. You know, maybe if today you know you're not joined to Jesus, you're not in Christ, don't be tempted like I was to just attach yourself to his teachings and try to live by them. Believe me, it won't work. I sometimes hear people say, oh, I live by the Ten Commandments. I base my life on the Sermon on the Mount. And I always think, how? How can you possibly do that without being in Christ? It's hard enough to do as a Christian. Instead, maybe today, maybe why not just take some time to reflect on what it really means to put your faith in Christ and to become a part of him. Maybe chat to a friend here at Rev or one of the leaders if you have those questions. And for those of us who are Christians here, maybe there are some of us who are doubting, really doubting Jesus' love for you. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. But are you struggling to look into his face with real confidence and say, you love me? Others might be struggling to remain in Christ, maybe being tempted to pull away. Or others may have lost their joy. You've lost your joy of remaining in Christ for whatever reason. Life's not always easy, is it? <laughs>